Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and everything in between, welcome to the Kevin Clifton Show. Now, I haven't been uh, doing the podcast for the last two weeks, um, mainly because it's been a very busy couple of weeks for me. Um, I cannot announce to you yet what it is that I've been working on, but there's some big announcements um, that are coming very, very shortly, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah, I, I sort of want to talk about it right now and want to say things or even give you a clue, but I can't. I'm not allowed to, but there's some, there's some awesome projects and it's all about to be announced. I don't know when yet, but yeah, I've been working on stuff and the, the podcast has had to take a little bit of a backseat, but I that's know. okay. You know, don't you? I know. Yeah, yeah. I know what know. you've been doing. You know. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> Multiple exciting things. That's all okay because sat in my garden at the moment um, as we come back into doing the podcast um, is a really, really exciting guest. Um, I've seen across social media that a lot, a lot of you have um, already got into his podcast. Um, I've, I've obviously sort of tweeted about it and stuff. Um, you're probably going to get hit with a few more posts about it because it's very exciting. Um, this podcast was called I'm Not a Monster. It's on, available on BBC Sounds and Apple and Spotify and, and all the places where you, where you get your podcasts. But I think it was officially sort of went through BBC, right? Yeah, right it was a BBC Frontline the US broadcaster co-production. It's yeah. available wherever you get your podcasts, as yeah. the saying goes. And so it's weird because the man who made this podcast, Joshua Baker, my guest, he is... Um, He's a really good friend of mine, and most of the, most of the time we're talking about like F1 or something um, and chatting away, um, talking absolute nonsense. Um, but now I'm going to interview him in, in so, quite a formal way. It's and, so and it funny. Feels, it feels a bit odd. It but, does, doesn't it? It's the most, it is, you were just saying this, it's the most serious we'll have ever been with each other. Yeah. And also, it's about a podcast, and this is me sort of doing my podcast, about interviewing podcast. someone who has a podcast out, which is an incredibly successful podcast. So if you haven't listened to I'm Not a Monster yet, I would suggest that, well, you've got two options. Either press stop or press pause right now and go and listen to it. It's 10 episodes long, um, a, roughly around You did it in like two hour. days. I smashed through it. I binged through it, yeah, over sort Mad. of two days. It's really easy to do that. Um, so it's 10 episodes um, roughly about half an hour long, uh, give or take, each one. And it is about, now I could go and explain it or I could ask Joshua Baker on to explain it in a nutshell first. What would you prefer? Um, why don't you do it? Because you're the expert. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, though. boys and girls and everything in between, Mr. Joshua Baker. It is about an American family, particularly an American mom called Sam, and her journey to the heart of the ISIS caliphate and back. Now, she says she was tricked into going there, uh, and I try to work out what the truth is. And this unfolds over four very long years, uh, where we get into pretty much everything you could ever imagine. And I discover so much more about Sam than I ever thought. You know, her relationship to the US government before she left, what happened when she was living at the heart of ISIS territory. Um, yes, yeah, so it's kind of like, a, it's been described as a Hollywood thriller, basically, but yeah, it's all true. Because you're listening to it, you're listening to it like, and we'll get more into the podcast later on, but you're listening to it almost li like a story. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of podcasts out that is like a sort of fictionalized, you know, murder um, mystery or something. Yeah. It feels like a, it feels like a, 
a fiction. Like it, it, it's sort of, it's almost too impossible that this could be a true thing that happened or journey that you went on. But this is all, this is documentary in a podcast. I mean, totally. And also it's a, it just got more and more absurd the more time we spent on it. And I think what we tried to do is create something that was obviously like journalistically spot on, but was compelling and had like, you know, every episode ends with a cliffhanger and, mm. you know, it's got all these narrative twists and turns. So it's, it's taking everything that you might try and do in drama, but applying it to real life. Mm. And we were just really lucky that we had such a wealth of material to work from. Mm. I mean, it was, it was mad how much, how much, how many different ways we could have taken this. Yeah. Well, we're going to get all into all of those ways. Now, I've got loads of questions about it. But before we get to actually all the stuff that went down with you in, you know, Syria, <laughs> so some pretty heavy stuff, um, you know, and talking to people in ISIS, mm. um, you know, of all Interesting things. bunch. Yeah. Um, I want to get a sense of, like, how you even ended up in that sort of a situation. So is, is doing stuff like that, being a, a, a journalist and reporting out in the Middle East and all that kind of thing, is that something that you always wanted to do? How did you find yourself doing what you do? What's been your journey there? I mean, I have a really unconventional journey to sort of podcasting, filmmaking, what have you. Um, I sort of, as a kid, I was like, mad into photography. And there's a guy called Robert Kappa, who's like a famous war photographer. And I was like, God, this guy's amazing. So I kind of always had that draw. Um, but then went to, basically, I had no like, links to journalism or anything like that. And I worked out that the editor of the Times newspaper, was a man called James Harding at the time, was kind of giving a talk at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Uh, and I thought, I'm going to go there and I'm going to collar him and see if I can get some work experience with the Times. And I literally, I waited for him to come off stage and I cornered him at the back of this tent so he had nowhere to run. And uh, I basically just said to him, look, mate, I want to be a foreign correspondent. This is me. He couldn't escape. And he said, OK, I'll introduce you to the foreign editor of The Times. who's a man called Rick Beeston. Mm-hmm. And I met Rick, I think a couple of weeks later, and he grilled me for 45 minutes. And Rick was kind of this mad... Uh, famous for taking chances on young people and would just throw them in the deep end. And Rick basically grilled me and he said, what do you want to do? Uh, You know, what do you want from me? And I said, well, can I have some work experience on the desk? And he was like, yeah, turn up tomorrow. So suddenly I was on the foreign desk of one of the most prestigious newspapers in the world, trying to work with the editors to put stories together. I had no idea what I was doing for a week. And then uh, at the end of the week, they kept me. What age were you? I was 22. (laughs) And I didn't know at the time, but Rick was basically dying. He had cancer. So he was taking these chances on all these, these young people. And I was lucky enough to be one of the people he took a chance on. And in about 18 months, I went from being a researcher to one of their foreign editors. So sort of doing the night edit of, of, the, of the time. So I would, I would come in and do the sort of second edition of the paper. So it was an amazing journalistic training. And then from that, I sort of went into documentary filmmaking. I worked in the NGO sector for a while. I went and worked in TV news, uh, worked for the Victoria Derbyshire show for a while, and then sort of started to make more long form audio, uh, sorry, long form visual. I made lots and, of documentaries. And on those shows, what would be your job title? So I, I had a few. So I started out as a, an assistant producer. 
And then I sort of worked my way up and then became like a producer director, which means that you're sort of the creative boss of of the film making process and then above you you have like an exec producer and things like that mm. um, and then obviously worked with Stacey which is yes. how you and I came to know each other well, I think I made three films with Stacey now yeah so you've like directed Stace out in Iraq yeah uh, what's the, oh you did the whaling one the whaling with, one with Stace and the I did one didn't I? I did the lockdown one because it was filmed at her home, so she wanted sort of oh yeah yeah people she knows basically to do that yeah, one. Yeah, I was in that one. You were. Uh, <laughs> you were. It's you also filmed our, our part of the uh, of Jesse Ware's music. I video. did. <laughs> I got to sit in your fireplace because the flat was too small to sit to film. <laughs> did that. So I've done stuff like that, and then at the other end of the spectrum, I've done sort of very, uh, I suppose, like focused hard-hitting sort of like war films basically so mm. there's a whole spectrum of work I've done and then um, always wanted to do audio and this sort of story I came to in the most mad way possible and it sort of it opened up an opportunity to do both so I was basically I was working with The Guardian and Frontline at the time and I was making a film about uh, it's called The Battle for Mosul and Iraqi special forces were trying to retake the city of Mosul from ISIS. Mosul was like Iraq's second largest city, so it'd be like ISIS taking control of Birmingham or something like that. And I was embedded with this unit who were fighting to defeat ISIS while I was I was embedded with them. You thought, I'm going to go over there. <laughs> I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> no, it was really interesting because it, it kind of felt like it, there was a lot of difficult things about that battle in terms of the people fighting to retake it from ISIS hadn't had the best human rights record in the city previously. Wow. So I was really intrigued by it and as a sort of potential defining moment for the future of Iraq. And what ended up playing out is I lasted about 36 hours before being blown up by ISIS in a suicide bombing. And uh, I mean, the whole thing was mad. And that set in train this weird set of events where an old contact of mine who I'd lost touch with heard I'd been injured. And he sort of turned around and, so he sort of reached out to me and said, oh, how are you? Can we, can we meet up? I haven't seen you for a long time. And so I said, yes. And then I went to this hotel in central London and sat there while he was drinking sort of tea and scones. And I was trying not to, to sort of put too much weight on my broken back from this bombing. And uh, just in passing, he mentions there's an American family trapped with ISIS in Syria. And I'm like, what? Hold on, back up. What do you mean there's an American family trapped with ISIS? And he takes out his phone and he hits play on a video and it's a young American boy called Matthew being forced to assemble a suicide bomb by his stepfather. And obviously having just lived through or survived a suicide bombing myself and then seeing a young boy being forced to potentially prepare a suicide bomb. I was like, I've got to find this kid, which was the most idealistic thing because I'm sat in a posh hotel in London. He's in Syria with ISIS. And I was like, I'm just going to find him. And I did. It took me 11 months, but I did. You just felt compelled to... Uh, yeah. I, it's, to I know it sounds totally mad, but I just made a decision then and there that I would find this kid. Because that, that's what I was going to ask you about. Like, out of... Out of everything that you can do, all the countries you can go mm. to, you know, all the stories that you can tell, like, what makes America go out to 
Iraq and Syria and, and, and go out there. Was it just, did you just take a real interest in what's going on over there? Like in general, or was it more circumstance, like we need someone to go out there and put on this? Or Yeah, I mean, like, so I first went to Iraq when I worked um, in the NGO sector briefly for Save the Children. And I've been fascinated by it because obviously it's somewhere that we invaded. And yeah. we, you know, it's a massive part of our recent history. And I just absolutely fell in love with the place and the different people you have in different parts of the country. It's, you know, it's a very different place, north to south and, and in between. But it's just the generosity, the culture, the history, you know, I just, I've, I was like, God, I love this place. And I think I've been probably at least mid-twenties now, 25 times probably odd to You've Iraq. Been 25 times At Iraq. least, I would say, since 2014 to Iraq, yeah. I would just get deployed a lot there and then I would go in and out of Iraq across into Syria and cross back out into Iraq. So, yeah, probably like mid-twenties, something like that. The first time you went, yeah. were you mad nervous? I was nervous, definitely. But I flew into the north of the country in Erbil and... Uh, Bill's fine. I mean, you get like KFC and get drunk. <laughs> I've met some of my best mates stumbling around drunk in alleys in in, in Erbil. I'm not doing myself a service by, <laughs> by revealing that. But what's like? What's the process by which someone can just go over there? I'm assuming. Well, maybe I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm completely wrong. If I want to just go on holiday yeah. to Iraq, I can just you book could, a flight yeah. and go. Yeah, and they've just changed their visa system now, so it's visa on arrival for for main for uh, what's federal Iraq. And then northern Iraq has a slightly different, but they're both visa on arrival. It's a fantastic book market in Baghdad I can recommend. Yeah. A little boat ride along the river. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, there are places where you can go and get yourself killed, but yeah. that's not representative of the entirety of the country. And I think that's what's missed, really. Yeah. Honestly, I love it there. Because for someone like me, like I, the, the coverage that I get on the news and that, like, like the idea of going to Iraq is just complete. Mad. This is completely, maybe it's totally naive by me, but I'm just sort of what's in front of me on the news. But I just feel like n not in a million years would I want to be over there. But I don't think that is naive of you. I think that's largely an opinion formed about how we have represented that country in mm. our media for a long old time. Mm. You know, I, I remember my friend the other day posted on Twitter, Sophia Barbarani, who lives there. She'd Googled, um, I can't remember what, she, Fallujah, I think it was that she Googled, and the picture that came up was an American cannon shelling the city. You know, so what you do, you Google, that's the main image that pops up when you Google Fallujah, not like a town of people, a city of people who have lives, you know, there are markets, there's culture, it's a cannon. Mm -hmm. So, like, we obviously have an image of Iraq in our, in our heads that obviously is formed through war, but it's such a different place now. Mm. It's obviously got problems. It's still dangerous in places, and you know we're kind of responsible, I think, for a lot of those problems. But it's an amazing place, mm. and the generosity of of that country is absurd. Mm. It's it's funny. Stace said the same thing to me. Like obviously she's been a couple of times. I don't yeah, know I think yeah, she's, she's been, been twice. Yeah, yeah no, three that. times she's been. And she and she says it's it's beautiful and it's it's like it's an amazing yeah. place with a, with an amazing with amazing people and also do you know if you went there at this time of year you'd, you'd be in the north of the country so you're driving towards the border of syria you'd be driving through these beautiful green rolling hills you know people think right they think desert they think sand like you'd be beautiful green rolling hills 
you go down to the Sulamanir area in, in, in the sort of the north of the country, you kind of got these incredible mountainscapes with these amazing views. Honestly, if it didn't have the war, it would be like a hiking, climbing, yeah. paragliding. It's, it's, it's and then you, sorry, it's, just to keep on my fanboys, yeah, yeah. you go to the south of the country, and it's a completely different um, culture, basically, and, and it's a different experience, it's a different climate. And then, you know, you go into mainstream Baghdad and you've got a kind of city life going on. It's, it's, it's a really incredible place. You go up to Mosul, which is where I was blown up, and the Arabic changes so much. It kind of like, I do a disservice, so please don't be insulted, anybody. But the accent is so different. That it's kind of like somebody speaking a bit like with a Scouse accent compared right. to like a southern posh accent. So it's quite interesting. <laughs> it's an amazing place, honestly. I'm fanboying too much about Iraq now. So. <laughs> Okay, but let, I mean, it's, you've mentioned it. And I'm I not feel, on I, the tourist board, just feel, so you know. Yeah, I feel like we've, we've sort of skirted over, we, we've, we've briefly mentioned the fact that you were blown up. This is true. Over there. Yes, I was. Tell me about this. Which is, you know, if I've been like 25 times, I've got a 1 in 25 injury rate. That's not bad going, <laughs> is it? <laughs> this was on, how, on your what visit? Seventh visit? Like, I don't know. Yeah, you've been there a may, few times. I've already. been there quite a few times by that yeah. point. Uh, yeah, probably at least seven. Um, so the story at the time was that, so I, sort of as I said, they, I, the American coalition and Iraqi special forces and what have you were pushing to, re to retake this city. That was a really important thing because ISIS had established its caliphate. I mean, if, would, let me start this again. When we think about ISIS, we tend to think of a terrorist group but they were also a group that controlled an area pretty much the size of Britain and mm. 10 million people, which is crazy, mm. across Iraq and Syria. And they sort of had two jewels in that caliphate, if you like, as they called it, which was Raqqa in Syria and Mosul in Iraq. So it was a really big moment for Iraq when they were going to retake that city that they'd lost. Their, their army had basically run away when ISIS came. 125 people basically took over a city. Um, and with taking over that city, they took over loads of weapons that had been given by America and what have you. So it was an important moment for that country to retake the city. Mm. Now, they did a really good job up until they got to the sort of the, the boundaries of the city and a little bit in. And then the public narrative was, we're kicking ISIS's butt, you know, we've got them, we're doing really well here. And then we were trying to get into the city and suddenly access to the city became very difficult. The American coalition were turning people away. You drive up, you get taken to these compounds and you wouldn't be able to, to, to go any further. And this Iraqi special forces colonel who my mate had gone for a drink with in a nightclub, uh, had basically got what we were trying to do and said, I really want you to come and see the reality of what we're going through. So he said, come up to Mosul, my guys will meet you and we'll take you in. And we got there and we couldn't, we just couldn't go any further. It was like, we can't get through the checkpoint, the Americans are here, they're stopping journalists, you know, there's, there's no way. Mm. And he goes, I'm going to send some guys to get you, drive to this road and wait. <laughs> so we drive to this road and this black pickup truck like, comes and they, we follow them. So we follow them through all these checkpoints, they're waving us through. We stop off at this hangar on the edge of Mosul and they load it full of ammunition. But see, even at this point, if that's me, I'm thinking, it's probably best to turn back now. 
I, well, do you know, I remember thinking I'm committed now because I was driving down the road and you could hear the gunfire in the distance. Because we do things, we like we obviously do a lot of security training and the more time you spend in war, the more things you pick up. So I'll mm. always drive, for example, with... I'll have my window two inches open so I can just hear the surrounding noise. And I can hear the gunfire and explosions in the distance. I'm thinking, we're, we're into this now. And all the buildings on the side of this highway have been absolutely decimated. It's supposedly the worst urban combat since World War II. So it's just, it's a horror movie setting. And we're driving in. And you're driving in. We're driving in, <laughs> in a Toyota. And Perfect. Uh, we pull off down this side road and I, I sort of, I'm following this, this black uh, pickup truck and we stop and there's an American style Humvee like you see in the movies. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but I can see this guy and the boot of the Humvee is open, massive boot, and they're throwing boxes into the back of this Humvee. I'm like, what's he throwing? Like these big wooden boxes, he's just heaving them in. And we get out of the car and, you know, we're saying hello to everyone. And I walk around to the back of this Humvee and the guy is throwing ammunition. He's throwing mortars, he's throwing grenades, he's throwing, um, he's just heaving. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going in that car. <laughs> and then the guy, as literally as I just say that, the guy turns around and says, if you want to come into Mosul, we're going to have to sneak you in on this ammo run. So you're going to have to get in and hide amongst the ammo boxes. So I'm just thinking, so I turn to my team and I'm like, (laughs) our options are do this or this has to be a team decision. We can't like, we can easily turn around, like no, no shame if we want to turn around. And we, we all agreed. So we put on our body armor, our helmets and got in the car and 15 minutes in, they got lost in the streets of Mosul I couldn't understand the Arabic and they were basically saying was it is it left here is it right here which is exactly what you want when you're driving to a front line and um, we were ambushed so we just turned around this corner and suddenly we drove into a a load of ISIS fighters and they just started shooting and we're literally in this bizarre situation where the back of the car is so laden with explosives that the last thing we want them to do is shoot the back of the car the front of the car is armoured so the bullets are just bouncing off the front and everyone sort of just sat in the car not saying anything as the guy does the most elaborate nine point turn <laughs> like in the road <laughs> in basically in slow motion oh. where everyone's just like oh god please get us out of this and we made it through that eventually we we met up with the commander and uh and how are you at this point your mentality are you calm under pressure because of training are you panicking are you i was okay because i was filming so that gives you a natural distance. And also I'd, I've, I've been in combat situations previously. So I knew it was highly unlikely that unless they had like an RPG, they, like they can shoot at the front of the Humvee all day long, we'll probably be okay. And he's going to get us out of it. Yeah, I mean, that I didn't like. But <laughs> I remember when we pulled up, the guys, the two ammo guys were talking about what they should do. And one of them got out of the car and I literally passed him his weapon because he got out with his gun. And I was just like, you should hold that. Take that. Please take that. <laughs> Um, but no, I was okay. I was you, when you're in those environments, you go into a hyper vigilance. You are incredibly alert, mm. incredibly focused, and constantly checking your environment. Because the thing about that was that ISIS were trying to kill you in every way imaginable. So they had, you know, they they had excellent booby traps. They were brilliant at rigging what we call IEDs that would, you know, homemade bombs. They would attach grenades to the bottoms of drones and then they would fly them over and drop them. They had snipers, everything so everything could kill you. And they had an unprecedented use of suicide car bombs or truck bombs 
and that was their version of like an airstrike, if you like. Uh, so you just had to be aware of everything. Stay standing behind Space us, waving. Looking out the window. Watching she, she'll be like, oh God, is he talking about being blown up again? <laughs> You're distracting us. <laughs> God, just. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Uh, I can't remember what I was saying. So, that, yeah, no, it was just a very dangerous place. And I think what was particularly difficult about that battle is uh, civilians were living amongst the fighting. So I remember the colonel said to me that his men will be, you know, in the kitchen shooting at ISIS who are in the living room and the family will be upstairs. You know, it was this very difficult battle where a lot of civilians sadly lost their lives. It was a mad, yeah. Do you think this is sort of a side question mm. with ISIS? You said that, like, we, we think of, like, this terrorist group, but they basically, you know, they had this sort of, well, they would claim they had this, like, sort of religious ideology mm. and they took over, you know, an area the size of Britain, is mm. what you're saying, and they had all these ideals of how they wanted to run it. Do you think that initially, say at the initial idea phase of ISIS, a bit like people sat around now talking about the European Super League in football. Here's what oh, we're going to do God, with this. To get that. How, right, how are we linking Super ISIS League, and the European Caliphate. Super League? Right. Do you think the initial, when, you know, the guys have got round a table and they've gone, right, this is what we believe, you know, let's, we, we need to carve out our portion of the world where we can do this. Do you think initially, in your experience, that their intentions were just born out of religious ideology and their intentions were good and it turned nasty or do you think they're just no, nasty people? ISIS has no resemblance to Islam as far as I'm concerned. They mm. are absolutely abhorrent and, and I think it's, it's just, if you go back to the sort of foundation days of ISIS, I mean I won't go too tangential here but you, you, what you have is you have a very big anti-American, anti anti-Western sentiment in their leadership that's created by the invasion, but also because of an extremist perspective. Then you have us basically imprisoning lots of people in the same place, mm. committing abuse when we... And this isn't saying that we're responsible, but we are accountable for some elements. Played a part. Yeah. yeah. So you imprison them all together while simultaneously... So essentially what we did as well is we disbanded the Iraqi military. We also disbanded, we, we basically fired anyone who'd been some, in something called the Ba'ath Party. Now the thing is in Iraq at the time, pre-invasion, if you wanted to be in a, in a managerial position, you would have to essentially align yourself to this political party. It didn't mean that you were like a pro-Saddam dude. It was just how everything was done. You know, you, if you want to move up in the world, you've got to be in this club. Mm. And we fail to understand that. So we invade, we put a load of people together, we disband the military, we fire people in positions of management and power for being associated with this thing, and we do a lot of imprisoning and a lot of abuses, and we basically set the conditions for extremists to recruit desperate people and recruit people with military training and exploit that. And... We really do have a lot to answer for, for the, some of the, the atrocities that have happened in that region. It's not to say that we're responsible for committing them, but we have set the conditions yeah. for them to be committed. Mm. And just basically sort of um, inspired 
a massive number of people to be really angry at us and want to do something about it. Which, and, and you know what, that's what's kind of mad to me about when I go back to Iraq. Um, we, it's just the, the hospital, the hospitality, 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 I don't mean hospitality, <laughs> hospitable, the hospitable hosp- nature of the people in that country. <laughs> Food's good as well. Uh, given everything that they have been through, is is mesmerising to me. Mm. It really is. Mm. But in answer to your question, ISIS are just a horrific gang that does not represent anything to do with the religion that they purport to be part of. Mm. Mm. And then you say you you said that sometimes you would cross into. Syria. Yeah. From there. In the early days, that was quite fun. So, uh, so it was like classed as like an illegal crossing. So you're not really crossing into like you're not going through a like a passport control, so to speak. Mm. Um, and it was, as far as I work out, a bloke had basically made a homemade boat, stuck an engine on the back of it, or a few of these, and they would ferry you across the river, and you'd sort of go from one side up this dirt bank and then you're into Syria you know very you know maybe 50 meters now if you go there's a pontoon bridge and it's still like an illegal crossing technically if you're if you're you know Assad but they've got like a giant warehouse on the other side with duty free and giant letters written on it it's just like (laughs) I mean there's so much of, of like working in war zones or working in conflict zones where you're just confronted by the maddest things or the just little subtle jokes around you but you go there you sort of now have a passport control you go across a pontoon bridge you come up past duty free and then you're into syria and you're off to the races kind of thing it's very bizarre (laughs) it's not what people imagine (laughs) um but then since you've been since you got blown up Mm. amongst all of that chaos did that change how you viewed going back again yeah i think it I mean, I think what, you know, I didn't immediately rush back. I went off, I was in America filming something else once I physically recovered. I mean, I don't, actually, so I don't think I realised how unwell I was physically uh, in hindsight at the time. I think, you know, after about six weeks, I thought I was better. I don't think I was physically recovered for about six months. Mm. But, uh, you know, I did things like, when I was in America, I took myself to a gun range because I knew I would go back to Iraq and I didn't want to be around the sound of gunfire again oh, suddenly. So I took myself to a gun range and had the smell of firearms and the bullets. And I remember being like, oh, my God, in the initial. And then by the end of it, I was OK. Like a form of exposure therapy. Yeah, I guess so. I was just like, I need to do that because I don't want the first experience to be there. And then I did some therapy and I went the first time I went back into Mosul I actually went with a friend of mine Amy and she um, she was somebody who was I was close to when I was blown up so she knew everything that happened and that was a weird experience but the change it made is it it does remind you that you can get hurt and I think I've got a pretty good gauge of straddling the line between risk and rec- risk and recklessness mm. um, but it definitely drove home that 
Look at that, that's Stacey Dooley there. <laughs> just talking about being blown up again, Stace, for a change. Yeah, but it's no it's empathy. Good talking about it on the podcast. I'm the only person who can say that to Josh because we have like a sibling relationship. <laughs> it's just, I'm this one. This is uninterested. Bye. Well, because I asked, I asked uh, Amy. Yeah. Um, Other Amy's my partner. Yeah. Yeah, your girlfriend Amy um, uh, about this the other night, and I was like, "How do you feel when Josh is over there and, and you know documenting, exploring all, all of this, investigating mm. all, all of this stuff?" Because I know how I feel when Stace is out there. Like, I'm terrified, and you like that. You've obviously played a part in that. Like short side story for everyone listening. When when me and Josh first met, like around that time, Stace, Stace was uh, going out to Syria to make one of her documentaries, um, going to sort of ISIS camps and stuff. And uh, I, I I just couldn't even get my head around it. I, I, and and. Josh, um, you said to me, you gave me your number and was like, anytime you've got any concerns about what's happening, you're like, let me know, because, you know, I know You're making me sound like a lovely and, person, though. Thank no, you, you did, though, and, 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 you know, you're like, I know how these things work, and I know a lot of the people out there, the people that she might be in contact with, and, you know, mm. I know how the general sort of procedure, and if you've got any questions and all of that, and then there are a couple of, like, middle of the night, like, Josh, they're telling her to go over there. What, what, what can I do? <laughs> I don't want her to... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I asked it's Amy gotta about be, it, yeah. and she said, she's so, on the odd occasion she gets a bit nervous, but in general she has the feeling that you're, you know what you're doing and you're not reckless. I suppose she sees, uh, I mean, like how much planning I do before I go. Mm. You know, I might make, write a hundred page quite literally 100 page, 80 to 100 page risk assessment, which tries to think about everything that could go wrong and put in place a procedure for it or make sure I've got the equipment to deal with it or the training to deal with it. I mean, in reality, five minutes on the ground, the plan goes out the window. But because you've done the planning, uh, the pl you know, the plan itself is useless. The planning is everything. Mm. You, you kind of then have the skills and mentality and contacts to adapt. So she witnesses that. I think... I mean, we've got the audio somewhere of me calling her from hospital when I've been blown up in Iraq, oh, and she doesn't yeah. believe it's happened. And I think that was a diff it was a that was a bit of a moment for her because that was the first time she realised, oh, he actually can get killed hmm. when he does these kind of gigs. Um, and I think before it had always been like a theoretical thing, hmm. where she put a quite a brave face on it and sort of dismissed it. But then that was sort of drove it home. But then, you know, the more I've done it since, she's just gone back to a thing of, I think she won't allow herself to be worried, mm. which, which is one way of dealing. I mean, there's no doubt that the choices, because nobody forces me to go to these places. My choice in going there does put pressure on my family and my loved ones. Mm. And that's on me, really, I think. Mm. It's hard on them. I mean, you know, Stace runs off and does mad things as well. Yeah, yeah. And I can't stand it and uh, <laughs> I really struggle and then I'm like sort of googling everything to do with it oh god that is the worst risk yeah do you know one of the things that killed me when I was with Stace in Iraq is there was a lot going on in the country at the time and there was a way that we could manage it and and sort of navigate it but it was very you had to be very thought out and very careful but bloody Stace would spend her entire evening on Twitter 
finding herself in these mad Twitter holes with like people saying her bill's about to be invaded, the city we were in, and yeah. all these things. She'd wake, she'd just wig herself out all night, and it was, it was like, Stacey, you've just got to stop looking at Twitter. I promise you, it's going to be all right. <laughs> she didn't do it. <laughs> so let's get onto like the the process of making like a documentary or in this form a podcast yeah you've made a documentary as well out of this that was on yeah. uh, bbc is it still on bbc iPlayer? yeah yeah return yeah. from isis a return. family story yeah return from isis is that the good. full title of yeah return from isis a family story which is like a whistle stop tour of the podcast it's not as good because it, 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 it's it's different I but it's say. very good josh yeah, it's, the podcast it's, is my love, though. Yeah, yeah. Return okay. from ISIS is something I'm proud of, don't get me wrong, but it's, yeah. it's 59 minutes, whereas the podcast is 10 episodes. Yeah, I would encourage people to watch and listen to, to all of it. Like, I, I remember when, when me and Stacey sat down to watch it, and it was, it's an excellent uh, documentary, so that's on iPlayer. Can I ask you a question? Go on. You watched the film before the podcast. Yes. What was that like, like for you? Did, 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 like... Is it a weird experience going from visual to audio or did it uh, take anything away from the story? No, I don't think it took anything away from the story. If anything, it sort of gave me a vague, uh, not vague, it, it, it gave me uh, like um, faces to the, yeah, to the yeah. names that I was hearing. So I, I'm not a very visual person, strangely. Like I, I, I sort of, it, you know, if like Stace is saying to me, um, I've got these plans for the kitchen, what do you think? And she's telling me about it. I sort of can't picture it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got no experience of being in Syria or, or Iraq, only pictures that I've seen on the news, you know. So I, I suppose watching the documentary first and then when I was listening to it, I could picture what you were talking about. Like I, That's cool. We're, we're, some people might be able to anyway, but I, I'm not very good at visualising in that way. So I actually found like, oh yeah, I, I know. What, you know who what that is, person is. Yeah, I know who that person is and I can get a sense of that person. And, yeah. There's some really extreme and shocking and mad details in the podcast that we mm. couldn't get in the film. That, yeah. That I feel that's where it's been. Yeah, sorry, I'm tangenting. No, 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 Please say whatever you want. But this might be quite a broad question, but I mean, so you've made the documentary, you've made this podcast uh, uh, as well. You've worked with, I don't know the right terms, you, you've sort of directed and or produced. Yeah, you know, produced, directed. Stacey. Yeah. And you've worked with Louis Theroux, you know, like these kind of things. You've done high, high level stuff and your own stuff, obviously, obviously. Broad question time. What makes a good documentary, do you think? Uh, structure. Mm-hmm. The way you tell the story is 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 everything, but also I think it has to be. Like if, so, if you mentioned Louis. I mean, we could do Louis. We do Stacey. Like if you think about Louis, for me, Louis films are best when you plonk Louis in an environment, in like a hub location, and then you let him immerse himself within that, mm-hmm. and you let him meet characters within that so you put louis in a prison you put louis in a cult you know what have you you find a hub environment where there are going to be stories and they're going to be characters that he can discover and then as a producer director before you put louis into that you then research like crazy the potential stories or the potential people he could meet so you really start to grasp what what it could be so i think 
having a good base for a story, be that a physical location or like an idea, like a cult or something like that, or you know, a terrorist group like ISIS. And then it's about what is your way into that? So is your way into that through Louis? Is it the way into that in because you're following a story? Is it more a sort of like emotive interrogation, which I think what Stacy does for me, I think Stacy is one of the most inte- like emotionally intelligent people I've ever met. She is very good at connecting with people. So, you know, if you're thinking about a Stacy film, it's like who does Stacy need to be connecting with and what is she going to learn from these people? And then there's, so you've got the environmental factors and where and what is the story. And then you've got uh, the structure of how you put it together. Mm. And I suppose the, I think you need to have a story that is going to have, it's going to sound cliche, but like twists and turns, the best stories pull you in one direction and then push you in another. Mm. And I think as somebody who builds stories for a living, I always try to ask myself sort of three questions at, at every stage of the journey, which is like, you know, first of all, what is it about? It's okay, so it's in this instance, it's a podcast about a family that joined ISIS. Well, what's it really about is the second question. Okay, well, it's about a mom who either chose to go to ISIS or didn't, and it's trying to understand where the truth is. So that's actually like what you, you know, you're really getting into it. And then it's, for me it's what do you want people to take away from each scene so um i try to with every scene i'm building in a film i try to think about what is the takeaway point that people need to get from what we're doing here Mm. so i'll give you an example of that um in episode four of the podcast we meet a boy called aham who was bought as one of the family's slaves they had three slaves Mm. and he's now back in iraq with what's left of his family so joyful and lovely Mm. and so that started about being what's it about okay i'm going to go meet aham he's one of the family slaves maybe i'll learn something uh about sam from him and it quickly became apparent he had a lot more to to say and then it became about okay this is about bringing the audience into the fact that isis were engaged in slavery And bringing that became a reoccurring theme throughout the podcast series. So it's like we need to set up that ISIS did this. This is a way to do it. And it's a human way through a boy who endured it. And then the third question of what do I want people to take away from it or what's it really about? It became about the fact that this boy, although he was essentially owned by Sam, Sam, the boy is really grateful to Sam and sees Sam as somebody that saved his life. And you can make an argument that if it wasn't for Sam, he wouldn't be alive. So then what you want people to take away from this scene is you came to it thinking that you were going to meet a boy who would hate Sam. And actually you leave realising that Sam is not black and white. There's a lot of grey in her and what she's chosen to do within ISIS. Mm. So I always try to subject any scene or any story I'm doing to those three questions. And if I can't answer all three, then the story's probably not right to be told yet. Mm. That was a very long round. That was a great answer. Sorry. It was, it was really good. And... And also, so you, you mentioned, like, we, we were talking about, like, Louis and Stacey, for example. Um, I, I find when I watch um, Louis Theroux documentaries, what, ten, what tends to happen is, like, like you said, he'll get put in a situation and he'll sort of ask the right questions and let them answer it and do their thing, let these people sort of behave however they're going to behave and almost then say nothing, just let it sit. 
and that's like one one approach to it. Stacy gets very, and you said like she's emotionally intelligent, and, and she gets very sort of. You will see how Stacy reacts mm. to someone's behaviour or someone's answer to a question, and you know, and and that's interesting. Do you, do you find that you take a particular approach to it your, yourself, like like going into I'm not a monster, um, for example? Like how um, we what I'm trying to ask you is like how important. Did you have thoughts of, should I react to what she's just said, or is my job to stay quiet here? So I was actually talking about this uh, earlier today with Mm. my producer, Joe. And when you work as a producer-director, be that with Stacey, with Louis, or just on your own, you're not re- it's not really your job to put your emotion into the situation and mm. and sometimes in environments I work in you know there's enough emotion in it enough drama in it mm. enough horribleness going on that I don't need to add mine mm. then to that environment so it becomes problematic if I do that but then you do a podcast mm. where people want to know what you're thinking how you're feeling and all of this so you have to find a balance between opening up now when it comes to interviewing for me I, I've spent a lot of time interviewing children, women, men, survivors of trauma, basically, across yeah. the spectrum of, of trauma. And the most important thing for me when I do that is that my, the person I'm interviewing knows that it's about them, but also knows that they're in control. And I really mean that, particularly with survivors of, say, sexual violence or what have you, because they've had their control taken from them. Yeah. So I will... I like to be able to record the first meeting with somebody, but also a lot of the time I will spend a lot of time with somebody or as much time as I can afford before doing uh, like a particularly emotive interview. So if it's going to be, we're talking about Aham, the young boy, that that's about 10 minutes of that episode. But I actually recorded that over two or three days. And I kept coming back and spending more time with him and then turning the microphone on at points. Mm. Uh, Some of the girls in it, um, you know, we recorded their interviews over, you know, a couple of days and things like that. So it's a luxury to be able to record like that. But for me, the approach is I'll reflect on my emotion afterwards or before I won't reflect in the moment. Um, There are a couple of points in the podcast where you can hear me really struggling with mm. my with my feelings mm. but um in an interview setting it's about that person for me mm. in, in my style of doing things mm. i guess and then because as a listener listening to this podcast through 10 episodes like i imagined and having seen the documentary already so i sort of know what it's about you know i knew the story obviously mm. the podcast goes a lot deeper into the story than than the documentary um, but I knew what it was about and therefore I'm going in and I was sort of as much as I always try and keep an open mind about everything I just want to learn and hear the information and, and all that stuff I felt like as I press play on episode one my general feeling would be leaning a certain way or already as we were going through the episodes I didn't expect it to take me as up and down as it did or you know left and right mm. <laughs> as it as it as it did in terms of how I felt towards Sam, you know, the, and, and the boy. Well, I, I suppose mainly the, the, I keep wanting to say the character of Sam. It's a real person, it's not a character, but um, towards Sam. Because um, the, main, the main sort of question with, with her that you're constantly asking yourself is how, how do I feel about this 
about this person going off to join ISIS and taking a kid with her, you know, and, and, and it's the question of are there all these circumstances which were very difficult for her and what would I have done in that situation and, and you know, is she a, a terrible person for it? Or, you know, what, was she terrible for going and joining ISIS? Or well, I've got, did it she, just I have to point way? out, genuinely, and this is it's something that I have to flag regularly, like, Sam has got to be the only person who lived in the heart of, uh, you know, ISIS's caliphate, so-called caliphate, who travelled there to be with the group who didn't actually join per se them ideologically. I mean, she's in this, even the FBI couldn't prove that she was a member of ISIS. Mm. And this is what's weird because she lived there for two and a half years. She's How on earth did she survive? Yeah, yeah, she doesn't even have, have, have appeared to have practiced their so-called version of Islam. Like, it, it, she is... Her, st- her tale in what we tend to think about of jihadists and people who go to Syria to end up there is so unique and so different. And I think when you're talking about being pulled and pushed, mm. that was kind of really important to us because we want it. Obviously, everyone comes to this with their idea of what somebody who joins ISIS is, particularly in this country where we had mm. so many people go. And actually, you find with Sam, it's way more complex. Yeah. It's yeah. not clear cut. And you're with me as I'm constantly trying to, how did this happen? Yeah. Like, you know, did Why she do did this? Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that Sam found herself in a position where she essentially had to make one bad choice after another. She had to pick the best bad choice. Mm. And ultimately, I think her goal was to get her kids home. Mm. And along the way, she had to make some pretty difficult decisions and those decisions had consequences. Mm. And what I should say as well, there is no doubt that Sam's actions did support ISIS in the sense Mm. that, you know, she took money there, Mm. she helped her husband get there. So she did support a group that committed genocide and killed, you know, hundreds of thousands. Um, But it's just not as clear cut as that with Mm. her. And it's very easy to go, okay, so she's a baddie, because it's very easy to sit you know, here in, in London, for example, and, and go, she's taken her kid over to Syria to be amongst ISIS and put her kid in that situation. She's a baddie and should be seen as a baddie. And da, 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 da. And it's sort of like on that level, you go, yeah, OK, obviously. But at the same time, there are things that you describe in the podcast and things that she's describing and you know things that happen to her while she's out there that even at the point at the most when you're thinking she's a baddie like it's impossible not to feel sorry for her mm. at, at certain points of this like it's it really takes you in a lot of different places and I'm, for you like as much as you're trying to document this and just see the big picture and see it as objectively as possible surely it was impossible for you not to feel emotionally all over the place during oh, the making God. of it. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, 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 it was very hard. I, I, at so many different points. I mean, you know, in episode eight, I go to the place where Sam claims that she was tortured, a notorious mm. ISIS torture prison, and I'm crawling around this prison trying to find evidence. And it's just so... It's one of the grimmest places mm. I've ever been in... I'll let the cars go past. 
This is, this is podcasting in the it's outdoors. A, yeah. I think it's a fire engine. No. I don't know. Uh, did it take an emotional toll on me? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I always try to... As a kid, I read something on a wall which was uh, all human beings are born equal in dignity and rights, right? And it's the idea that everyone is born equal. And I think the way that you defeat groups like ISIS is by remembering that you're dealing with human beings, that you are human beings. Hum mm. ISIS would, would, would see you as, you know, a non-believer, as somebody that should be killed. And I think the only way that you truly defeat that is to, to meet that with love and, and reject of that. And mm. so even when I'm dealing with people who are bad people, I try to find a way to empathise with them or a way to understand their perspective because it's the only way you learn and start to get inside their head. So with, with Sam... You know, at times I've, I, I really struggle with things that she's done and, and she's been involved with, but I do also have a great deal of empathy for her. Mm. And I was being pulled and pushed mm. throughout these four years. So it's really great. It's always really great when somebody who's listened to the podcast turns around and says, God, you know, at one point I'm here and I, I, I can't stand it. The next point I'm like, oh my God, you know, she needs help kind of thing. And that that is kind of where we wanted you to be as a listener. Mm. The other place we wanted you to be is to just feel that her son, Matthew, who arguably has suffered, you know, some of the worst in this, is just actually this amazing, mm. lovely little kid who didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And he really is the heart of the story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, as a lot of, um, it's not the same situation, but it, for, for like, people listening to sort of understand it as much as possible as a lot of parallels with the likes of Shalina Begum mm. which everyone's you know everyone's talking about at the moment has been for the last last few years and, and I think if this podcast has um, shown us anything it's like what you said nothing is quite as as black and white as, as just, it seems yeah. yeah as it seems there's so many like areas of areas of grey in there and I mean do you have a particular opinion on on Shamima. Mm. I think Shamima's... So I was working in... I was making a film as an AP in East London Mosque in 2015 when Shamima left mm. and her family walked into East London Mosque. So I was literally on that story, if we're calling it a story, mm. from day one, quite from our, you know, whatever. And I ended up going with her family to... Meeting her family in Turkey, in Istanbul, as they were trying to, you know... And I've... Um, I'm very aware, I've, I've, I've got to be a bit careful what I say on this, but yeah. I'm very aware of Shamima and uh, her story. Mm. And I do think it's particularly interesting that she has captivated such hatred mm. in the way that she has from our, from, from our society. And also, I think we, this isn't excusing her behaviour or her choices, but no. I do think we do tend to remove from the narrative that she was 15 when she left mm. and that she has been, I believe, pregnant five times by the time she's 21. Mm. So this is a person, again, who has chosen to join. Actually, unlike Sam, she's chosen to join and seek out the ideology of ISIS. Mm. But 
actually when you scratch a little beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on there. Mm. And that might be the next story I do, so I can't tell you too much more about that. Uh, yeah, that, that would be great. <laughs> we'll see. It's umming and ahhing. And also, so, so obviously you've got an enormous capacity for... Um, empathizing with these people mm. and, and getting to the bottom of their story and, and hearing it from from their side and what they've got to say and the, and the reasons why as you know why as, as much as they're explaining you know what why they've taken certain decisions do you ever whilst you're doing this feel like a responsibility in any way to say people back here for example who have a certain opinion of ISIS who have seen the reports of what ISIS get up to and their, their, their behavior and you know might have lived through a, attacks in this country as you know like Manchester bombing and, and, and things like that um, that will be of an opinion of like this is what they've done maybe I've lost people in mm. terrorist attacks and this is what they've done and why should we hear their side of the story? You know that. Do you know what I mean? That kind of um, yeah, attitude I mean, towards it. Do you, is that in your mind as you're making it, or are you clearly just trying to be as objective as possible? No, no. It, it, I mean, like also, I would never tell those people how to feel. I might disagree with their opinion, mm. but I wouldn't tell them how to feel. Mm. And I so I get it a lot on Twitter. Well, not a lot. I get it every now and again on Twitter where somebody's got a perspective, and mm. I'm always up. Like, if you want to jump on a Zoom, we'll chat about it. I mean, you can't always get everyone on Twitter to get on a Zoom with you. No, you no. put that <laughs> offer out there, and suddenly they just just ignore you. Or, but I think when taking such an empathetic standpoint in terms of your story building, of like just trying to understand how somebody ended up in a situation through their eyes. You also have to remind yourself of what they did, what they associated with, and what the consequence of those actions were. And for me, I always sort of, when thinking about ISIS, I, I'm always taken back to a place of a young girl called Suad, who's also in the podcast, who is probably one of the most strong and determined women I have ever met. And she was held as a, a slave by ISIS for several years and was bought and sold between several different ISIS fighters where she was held as a sex slave. Mm. And doing and spending a lot of time with her, doing a lot of interviewing with her, she just completely floored me and, and just how she had managed to find a way to survive such horrendous abuse and still come out of it as somebody who was calm, considered and thoughtful in what she'd been through. And she, interviewing her had a fundamental impact on my life and it was very difficult and it's not to make it about me, but I always try to remind myself as well of what these groups and these people did and the reality of its impact it had on people like Suad. She, you know, she suffered immensely for it. Mm. And you can't forget that, mm -hmm. even though all human beings are, you know, you can't stop people seeing people as human beings. Mm. Oh, that's to do with what I was gonna ask you next, is like, do you feel like you've changed as, as a result of this journey? I mean, it's been a four year I've come journey. a lot calmer. Mm. I, I've definitely become a lot calmer. I, I, I think, um, 
I mean, it's changed me in lots of ways. It's reduced my hairline. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I think at one point I had people I was filming or recording with on three different time zones. So I could literally stay up all night if they all needed to chat once. It was, I mean, they're all great, but it was horrendous because you just like, oh my God, I need to sleep. Uh, my partner, Amy, who you mentioned earlier, she would put up with me running off in the middle of the night to meet people in London at dark hours trying to get information and things like that. But it has changed me. It's made me a lot calmer and um, I think more measured. And it's, it's very much made me, having spent so much time now in conflict and war, or, or it's given me a very different attitude towards violence and aggression and things like that. I think as young men, we tend to have an attitude or a sort of an aggression in us or we feel like it's part of our identity and the more time you spend around real violence and aggression you realize kind of how pathetic we are or can be so i think that's it's probably had a lot of positive impacts as well mm. it's given me some trauma i've had to deal with as well definitely mm. um that was a bit of a rubbish answer but no it's great there's answer. an answer um, <laughs> and do you do uh like I mean, you're you're in charge of it, so so I was going to ask as like as someone mm. set up like Stacey gets asked this a lot, but like, what is there in the way of uh, sort of aftercare in terms of therapy, or do you feel you need it? Or it depends you... who I'm working with. So historically, some people have been absolutely terrible. Like mm. I worked with the Guardian once, and they were absolutely atrocious. They right. were really really bad in their aftercare. The BBC have always been really good to me. Mm. You know, they have. Um, have looked at it and I think one of the things I would say about mental health is we all talk about mental health now which is great as a thing that we need to be doing more to look after but no matter what your job is probably the most important thing is looking after your mental health mm. because it's the only way you have longevity in your career mm. because if you start to not if that starts to fracture you can't you can't function properly mm. and particularly when you're working in environments that are high risk or very upsetting or traumatic it becomes something you have to protect and you have to do the work on and the first step to that is recognizing that you do need to go and talk to someone so after i interviewed suad who i mentioned um previously i found myself very short with people and very angry which is like you know telltale signs and i found myself um sitting in an edit in, in london watching her interview mm. again and again and again and again and again it was, which was very tough so i just sort of said I'm starting to feel really angry. I think I need to go and talk to someone, mm. which was scary. But actually then what happened was I ended up eventually in a position where I had an even stronger support network. And now I sort of operate a position of if I go and do something that I may be in an environment that is, you know, upsetting. And even if I come away from that and I feel absolutely fine, which is 99% of the time, I will go and have a therapy session just to talk it through, just to be certain. Mm. Because I think who knows what I've ignored or suppressed. And it can be really... A friend of mine once said there is an art to coming home, and there really is, because you go from an environment where... You know, I think it's very hard for us to comprehend war in this society, and that's a good thing. But it's, you know, there are often no rules, or the rules are horrible, or, you know, it, it's... It's a very different way of living and 
you come back to this and it's a very different way of living. People are worried about their mortgages. People are doing this. You know, it's a very, there's an adjustment period. And I think having a little bit of decompression time is a good thing to be able to switch off that hypervigilance and be that therapy or exercise. They do a lot of climbing. Yeah. I mean, like in one, I, I wrote about this actually for one of the first times the other day. I remember being in Mosul on a different trip Actually, it was ahead of Stacy's bringing Stacy out to uh, to film, and I'd gone to recce a location, right. and I was sat there watching a kid play football with a man's ankle, and my wow. phone rang, and it was my partner Amy, <clears throat> who was having a really bad day at work, and just needed her boyfriend, and just needed to vent, mm. and there wasn't anything particularly it was just like a stressful day for her but i just remember it being this collision of these two worlds so i didn't tell amy obviously what i was seeing because that would have been unfair but you come home from those sort of environments to the normal stresses and you do have to get good at at not making it all about you but also Mm. looking after yourself simultaneously yeah it's a real contrast it's it's funny because it's sort of the other way around in our in our house it's like you know I'll, i'll go out and be like the audience didn't give me give us a standing ovation today. I don't feel happy in my performance. <laughs> you know? like, and, and she's telling me about some horrific thing that she's just been dealing with. She's in she, a in a documentary, and suddenly it doesn't seem as va- as valid. You know my point about I just felt like other people had more sparkles on their shirt than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, with all of these things, it's all relative, and like it's just so important, no matter what the stress is, that we kind of share it. And you two are very good at communicating about what mm. is bugging you or what's getting you down. And that's so much healthier than not. And mm. I think for me, so much of my job has been about not injecting my emotion that at times I have become emotionally like constipated mm. for what of a better phrase, because it's mm. just like, well, I've got to switch it off. So mm. the fact that you guys do that is amazing. But then is, is there a worry as well that like, if, if you do that so much that like, you might see something as horrific as a, as a kid playing football with an ankle mm. and you're slightly numb to it. Uh, yeah, you know I, I mean, mean, I think it's the thing. I, I'm always very conscious of the physical feelings in my body when I'm getting upset. So I know that I can have a conversation with somebody and be really, really upset. And what will be, I'll be talking to them, but my tummy will be going so tight oh, right. and like it'll be so, and it'll hurt. And I know then that I've got something I need to talk about with somebody but it's who you talk about it with as well like I don't tend to talk about a lot of stuff with my partner Amy um there are other places I go to talk about it some stuff I do because also you kind of have to think do I want Amy worrying about that so that it's a balance but talking is key Mm. it really is it sounds such a cliche but it makes all the difference Mm. you can talk too much I think Right. I think you can overshare. Right. I think you can get lost in therapy, but I, I think it's better that people get lost in it than don't do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Um, something that I'm... Are you all right for time? Or? No, I've got all the yeah, time in the world, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I keep saying, I'll keep these podcasts a bit shorter, but I never do because I start getting hooked on things. But like, um, So also, this is a different point now, but like, I'm really interested, fascinated, always banging on about storytelling yeah the art of storytelling um 
and the journey that it goes on and, and the structure of storytelling and all that sort of thing. So for this podcast, well, and for documentaries, I suppose, on, on, on TV, mm. you can't just document stuff that's happening and put it out there. You, you, like you said at the beginning, you've got to put it in a way that is going to engage the listener and, and take them on a journey. Talk to me about how much went into that process of deciding sort of how you put it together and edit it together. So we... Well, like, you know, Stace is actually very good at this as well. But you, you have to know the material. You have to watch the material. You have to really know, listen to the material. You have to know what you've got. Because mm. it felt like I was listening to a movie. Like, it oh, felt so like I was so happy to hear you say that. Thank Do you. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it felt it's, like I'm going on this journey with, with, with someone. So I wrote the series with a guy called Joe Kent, who's a friend of mine, amazing producer, perfect teammate for me. And he and I would take turns to do the first write of an episode okay and then we would rip it up and start again and things like that and we we found ourselves going through this process of you know we'd get our script together of what we thought would work and we would build and build and build and was he out there with you or? no he no. actually no he did come to syria with me once uh on, on a radio trip which was great because it just meant i had a teammate on the ground with me and mm. that was infinitely better mm. when you're just doing it on your own it's uh it's lonely and you've got too many jobs to do so you, you get a bit mm. lost in it yeah i think um i think so we basically decided that we would always leave an episode on a cliffhanger we would never say next time on monster mm. we would always let the story do the work for us yeah we also i was very strict about not making it about me Mm. and and keeping a like a clear line on um when i needed to inject myself and when i didn't and making sure that it was only in function of the storytelling and i think it was always about establishing what is our beginning middle of end of a of, a, of an episode mm. and then you write to that mm. i'm trying to write something at the moment and i know what the end is and i know what the beginning is and they're great mm but I'm really struggling with knowing how to do the middle. Right. And I think getting those three things down and then you can move everything around. If you know where your midpoint is, you know where your start is and you know where your end is, you can write to those points or you can create to those points. Mm. And if you can't do that yet, even just working out what the key themes are in your film, in your podcast, in a given scene. Okay, mm. I'm going to make a five-minute film scene? What are the key themes that this needs to, to deliver? How are the different ways that this can be put together? Mm. You know, I think working with Louis was a really interesting experience because I remember there's one scene, I think I cut it, I put it together nine different ways. The same scene, the same conversations with, with three people told nine different ways. And, and that's the thing about when you're in an edit, like although you are documentary, you do have a power to to guide and direct a scene into a particular area. And so stepping back and just asking yourself those three questions I mentioned earlier, you know, what's it about, what's it really about, and what am I actually trying to say, or what do I want people to take away from it, mm. is key. And just doing that at every stage of your storytelling journey for the film, for the scene, for a, a bridging moment in a story. And if you can apply that, you start to create something that inevitably has narrative tension, inevitably has cliffhangers, mm. and, and you sort of take it from there. 
Yeah, it's definitely got a cliffhanger. Every time it was like, <laughs> I'll listen to one more episode and then I've got to go and do this. And yeah. then you'd end that episode and go, I have to do it. Like, can I be late for that meeting? That's all right, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to move on to the next one. And I've been straight through it. That's the thing. It's mad. <laughs> and do you bring in people from the outside just to then, you know, people who are not attached to listen to it yeah go, i mean so we we feels like i need something like this or we we kind of do audience testing to some degree mm. so we send it to people but we also do something that i'm really proud of is we do um uh we will get people who are experts in a relevant field to feed in so it might be domestic abuse we'll go and find the head of a domestic abuse charity and we'll get them to read a script or we'll get them to listen and be like you know okay. what am i missing what am i getting wrong here mm. Um, and we hired on Monster a lady called Farah, who was a, is rather, somebody that's been displaced from Syria by the war, works here for an NGO. And what her role was to be a sort of cultural advisor. So to make sure that everything I was doing was pretty culturally sensitive and, and spot on. Because, you know, I spent years in the region, but I still won't have anywhere near the lived experience that she's got. So for us, it was as important to be culturally right as it was factually right yeah, yeah, yeah. and we made a lot of effort to do that and, and and ensure that we didn't propagate dangerous stereotypes or we didn't accidentally say something that we shouldn't or we didn't say something in a way that could be misconstrued because those are the things you've really got to get right for an audience because the second you go too far off piste in one direction mm. the second the audience member is fixating on something they shouldn't be yeah yeah and what would you say overall was like the biggest uh, challenge with with making it? Uh, too many cooks. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. Um, not at our level, but we ended up in a situation where we had a big partnership and we had lots of different stakeholders who were very senior and very powerful okay. and aren't used to being to not getting their vision made and the problem we found in is in terms that, of what it looks like or a certain narrative or? or yeah in terms of like you know the uh, just it could be like how is it what is going to be in a scene and what mm. people take away from that you know we had four very different viewpoints at times and we had very powerful people having those viewpoints and we had um uh, very culturally different ways of working. Mm. So a lot of the challenge was actually finding ways to help navigate and bring everyone together and overcome these different ways of working. It, was, it consumed a lot more time than I think anyone expected doing that. And then also it was just keeping it going because it was something that went on for four years. So I would have to put the project down and go and do a different film and then come back or do a different film and keep the project going. So you really had to be quite entrepreneurial in, in, in terms of how you kept the project alive. Mm, mm. You know, four years is a long time to do something. Mm. A lot it's changes. A real labor of love. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it became just a labor at points. Um, and there were a lot of times that we thought, you know, there, weren't, there were probably three key times where we thought we're, we're not going to get this right, you know, or we're, so we're not going to get this out. It's going to get canned. Mm. But we always found a way somehow to, to get around that. It was so hard. Mm. I, can't, I will never be able to convey to people how hard this was. <laughs> but it was worth it. I mean, it's such a journey. That you're going. It's incredible stuff. You learn so much from it. 
but it, it's also quite dramatic and emotional. And I think you just sort of fall in love with some of the like, especially the two young lads, like like Matthew and um, Aham. Aham. Like you just you're so taken by them. Are you still in touch with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't spoken to Aham in a while, but I'm still in touch with Matthew and his father. I think. I think it's just on a question about narrative. I think one of the things that Monster does really well is it never strays too far from its central question, hmm. which is, did she choose to go? Didn't she choose to go? Yeah. And how did this happen? Yeah, that's what it boils down to. And I think there could have been a temptation along the way to put in some big geopolitical context or, hmm. you know, here's a bit of history about this or that and we do yeah. do that a couple of times when it's relevant to answering those questions but mm. otherwise we just stay away from all that mm. it's a very human story yeah and what that's done is it's made the topic of terrorism i believe infinitely more accessible mm. anyone can listen to monster anyone and come away with a pretty decent understanding of like isis terrorism yeah. how it worked the region mm. and it at no point goes off into like a university lecture Mm. it's sort of very accessible which is key yeah in your storytelling because if you make something for five people then and interestingly what it's what it's done i mean maybe, maybe this is just me but i actually suspect not because just looking at the way everyone reacts to things like line of duty at the moment everyone's mm. got their theories at the moment or whatever i went on this journey and at the end of it i've come away with sort of questions about it and, and and about sam and you know all these conspiracy theories in my head about like potentially for me i mean you'll have your opinions on this but for, for me that it could be a lot more complex than even she felt like she was allowed to say in the, in the i i, I imagine deeper things going i would on. i'd hazard a guess you're talking about sam's relationship to the u.s government and yeah yeah i i think um, it, feels, it feels too much of a coincidence to me. Maybe I'm just, you know, being a conspiracy theorist, but that, that there was all this other side stuff. I don't want to ruin... I, I, I think, don't want to say no, exactly I think what, I want people to listen to it. But for me, it's like, there's more, a lot more to this than meets the eye. I think... I really hope I can sit down with Sam one day and she can actually candidly... Mm talk to me about certain things but I think there are certain things I will never mm -hmm. truly get to the bottom of and mm. only Sam will know only she knows yeah yeah I, know, I said that to her once and she said yeah absolutely right <laughs> wow. I said do okay. you think there are things about this that you're only ever going to know the answer to and she says yeah. yep absolutely I want everyone to listen to it because then I want everyone to like tweet us and stuff and get in contact with them oh yeah I mean if people want to do like a Q&A thing like, I'm all yeah, in for that because totally they're quite that. fun we do one live online or something yeah. they're really good fun yeah after this has gone out why don't we give it I don't know yeah, a week two weeks or, or whatever let people listen to it and then we'll do a yeah I'm all in for that live Q&A where, where people can, can can talk about it because I feel like we'll it's, be talking about it like we're talking about line of duty you know, it's <laughs> so interesting some of the questions that people like there's there's a few there's a big set that I won't preempt them now but there are a few questions that people come back to right that are quite interesting and they tend to centre around the kids yeah yeah I can imagine well mate. well that was very tangential I hope it's okay for you sorry I was all <laughs> over the place no no, it was it's, just like, no it's perfect we like, didn't even talk about Stace not a lot no she's going to be I don't know she's going to be disappointed in is, Stace not, is Stace good to work with she's brilliant to work with <laughs> she and I <laughs> have a very sibling relationship and 
she will make a point with me sometimes and be like, fine, I'll do it, but just because it's you. And I might just be asking her to just like look out the window or something like that. So she, yeah. she has those moments, but otherwise she's brilliant. She's very fun. <laughs> I tell you what she does do, which is impressive. She watches everything you record, right. which like she wants to watch it then, like that, that evening. Mm. And I, yeah, I, right. she's the only person I know that does that. It's amazing. You're right, actually. I've, I've noticed with Stace, even when she sends someone a voice note on WhatsApp. Mm. She listens to it back. She listens to it back, yeah, what she she's wants, just sent. She wants to know. She wants to know what everything, how everything was all the time, even, even if she's just done it. Like, I don't, like, we'll do this podcast. Yeah. Actually, I might listen to this one back because this is a different kind of podcast than what we've done. A lot of the podcasts, like, I feel like I was there. I've had the conversation. I've put it out. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. need to... No, she's, she's all in. To it, but, but Stace Wheel, all of her work, even, but even things like voice notes, that's not even necessarily her work. She was on the radio the other day with Scott Mills. Yeah. yeah. The one that I called in and, and Did the prank. Her. So good. Amazing and, Scottish accent. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> but she was there, did a two-hour show or however long it is. And then listened to came it back. back. That night, she listened to it back. I don't. I wonder if she's like I think assessing what she's doing. If there's anything she wants to change about, I think it probably is it. that it's about improving her performance, which is like mm. good because like all the top people analyze their performance. I haven't watched back my films in years, and I probably should, mm. um, because you always look at it and you're like, God, I would do that. Oh, I should can't believe it. Oh God, you know. Mm. So you might find that if you watch, say, something that you did a few years ago, if you watch it back now. Yeah, you might appreciate it in a, in a different way because I know for me, like I say with a, a performance that I've done, if I've done it yesterday and I watch it today, all I do is cringe. I hate watching myself. I hate listening to myself because you have this idea of like, this is how I perform or this is the moment that I experience and you watch it back and go, oh my God, it didn't look anything like what I thought. I hate it. I hate it. Uh, do you know, I, I think I really struggle with a lot of films, but I had a very weird experience that I've just thought about three days ago where I logged into an old email yeah. and in there was the trailer for the first film I ever did and I watched it and the, the film has tons of things I would change but the trailer I was like I wouldn't change that and I was so stunned mm. and I know that sounds arrogant and ridiculous but no, I was just no, like I'm really proud of that and I, I wish I could cut a trailer like that good now on certain things like I'm always just like how did the, it was I don't know so that was nice because it sort of it yeah. gave me a confidence that okay you obviously can do some things but but I wonder if at the time you would have thought that no 100% no 100% because I can look yeah, back but, on some things now some performances that I've done or whatever like old burn the floor stuff yeah, yeah. or even old strictly stuff I can look back now and, and like it'll just come up someone'll have posted it or yeah, yeah. You know, it'll just arrive on my feed and I'll look at it and go wow that was actually that was really amazing that was really, yeah, I'm really yeah. proud of that that was really good at the time I know I would have watched it and gone oh, do you think God, it's cuz your your nerves and your emotion gets out of the way it's Maybe. it's not there you kind of just looking at it. I, I suppose it'll either go two ways you'll either be really proud of it or you'll just be like oh my god yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah what there's was definitely I those ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a question for you. Why does Stace seem to buy everything with boobs on? I know. At the moment. Candles and vases and bowls. Water jug. Boobs and asses. Yeah. It seems to be the thing at the moment. I don't I'm not sure what this is about. She's got a vibe. Yeah. Definitely that. It'll yeah. roll it'll roll along <laughs> for a while and then it'll be something different. <laughs> She's in her boobs on everything phase. <laughs> Are you and Stace working on any, any more stuff going forward? Not at the moment. Not I mean, the moment. probably will in I'm the sure future. You probably will. 
I mean, it, it'd be interesting working with Stace now because obviously we've got so close. I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. It could be amazing. Like, it oh, could you be really. A trailer for a podcast. This is true. I did film that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also I enjoyed that. Me. Yeah. With an excellent good. performance. Excellent. <laughs> Comically genius. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But no, I like doing it. I, if I did a, another project with Stacey, I want it to be something really special and important to her. And, and I just think it would be interesting working with each other on something. We, we both really want to need to care about it in a mm. way that really meant something, I think. Because, you know, she's... I adore her and we have got a very siblingly thing and I think it'd be interesting to see how that works in like a professional setting now. Mm. Because it could be a disaster. <laughs> just or it could be absolutely argue. brilliant because we'd just be really honest with each other about what works and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it's probably just the perfect sort of setup, really. We do wind each other up, though. <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, all right, who's better? Stacey or Louis Theroux? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Louis really quite good, isn't he? Yeah, he's very good, isn't he? He's really quite good. Kind of oh, me too. I just honestly... He's, you know, it's just, it's just great. You're a big fan, aren't you? Yeah, I'm Long a big time. fan of Louis Theroux, yeah. Do you still... Um, so Stace. Do you still wait for Stace to fall asleep and yeah. read his book? Yeah, I pretend I'm watching Stacey and then... And then, and then he quickly switched tabs. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. I hope she listens to this. You were thinking about yeah. getting a, a Louis tattoo, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I've already got a couple of Louis Theroux tattoos. Yeah. 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 All of his excellent books and... He's just so talented, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, what a guy. He's <laughs> just got something unique about him, isn't yeah, he? He kind yeah, of dominates yeah, that space, really, really way, doesn't he? Really, really, yeah. There's, there's no one Trail like him. Blazer. Yeah. No one <laughs> like him before, no yeah. one like him since. No, yeah, no. that's it, that's it. But he doesn't have boobs on vases. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, but finally, just first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast. That's all right, I loved it. Um, I hope it's not too random. And... Please, if Stace ever goes back out there, and please keep her safe. <laughs> you go with her. <laughs> I tell you what, give me Stacey in a hostile environment over any member of the SES. She's she's just so good at diffusing tension. <laughs> yeah, I bet, yeah. She's really good. Um, she's terrified of everything, but there we go. But, yes, so a um, couple of things to finish off. Yeah. If, if you could work on anything any any project in the future going forward do you have an ideal do you have like a dream thing that you would love to, to uh, like yes I feel I like you're not allowed do. to say or you don't want to say <laughs> I uh, we will see whether we can adapt Monster into a TV show and that has to happen that would be a dream can I be in it yeah, I have to come up with a role. Dancing jihadist, maybe. <laughs> uh, Not singing. just a dancing, you know, Josh. <laughs> um, that, could be, that could be a good role. But also, um, I think, uh, thank you, I think um, there's a podcast series that we're trying to develop at the moment, which would be very um, good if we could do it properly, which centres around um, Shamima. But we need that to see. That would be amazing. Yeah, and it's something I feel very passionate about but we have to we have to see whether we can make it work yeah there are irons in fires i would just need one of them to pop out the fire and actually let me get on with it mm. that's the problem with being freelance isn't it mm. there's a lot of waiting for things yeah, to happen yeah, 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 exactly. we uh we're just talking about how much we love libby what 
Louis. We were talking about different different investigative journalists, <laughs> and we were just saying, you know, who's sort of leading the way. And <laughs> He's clearly the. Uh, obviously, Josh has experience of working with you and Louis that's Theroux. That's right. And we were just saying, you know, about how much of a trailblazer he is and that kind of thing. Yeah. No, listen, I'm a massive Louis fan, as you know. I'm an enormous Louis fan. They've got me out here to try and. Um, <laughs> Get the unforbidden. <laughs> I, I tell you what, we have we have. Louis. I've got a genuine question for you. Why people you. always say to me, "Who's your favourite documentarian?" What do I say? Uh, Josh Baker. Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I say Louis, and my favourite news reporter is Orla. But yeah, you do say that. The real question. Yeah. Why does everything have boobs on at the moment? I know I've gone into a boob phase. So the candles have got boobs. The vases. The um. Decant at the yeah water thing water jug jugs on jugs. Um, well, yeah, just just um, I mean it's very startling. Just why? Where did it? When did it start? Uh, when did the tits obsession start, Kev? Kev came. <laughs> well, it started down. much earlier for me. <laughs> Kev, <laughs> Kev came marching down the other day. And said, "Why has everything got tits on it in this house?" <laughs> Lucky you. Um, <laughs> have you had a nice time? Yeah, we had a really good conversation. Really? Um, actually, while, while we've got you here, because uh-huh. I was asking Josh what it's like working with you, oh what's it like working with Josh? Oh, that, he's ambushed me. Um, Look what he's what's done. What's it like working with Joshua? So Josh and I um, have got a really lovely relationship. We met years ago. Uh, the first documentary we made together, we were in northern Iraq. And Mosul was still under. No, it just been, but they were having their referendum and it was getting a bit like, oh, is it going to break out into that's civil right. war? That's, that's what, what, what you're thinking of. My first film was with Al Medina, a lady called yeah. Al Medina, and Mosul was still under um, IS rule. And then when Josh and I went to Northern Iraq together, we did a really amazing film that I'm really proud of. Um, focusing on the Yazidi community. Mm. Um, Josh, I've said this to you before, Josh is a total sweetheart. I trust Josh implicitly. I think if I was ever going to go to a hostile environment, I would take Joshua because he's so sort of straight-laced and thorough, um, which is hilarious because when he's in the garden drinking whiskey, he's a complete maniac. <laughs> so, oh, God. in a professional capacity, 10 out of 10. Pissed on whiskey... I wouldn't trust him to take the bins out. I live, what, five minutes away? (laughs) (laughs) It took me 40 minutes to get home the other night. (laughs) Excellent. What I like about Josh is um, lots of things. But I think what makes him special, arguably, is when we're making documentaries where we are focusing on... um, female issues or female empowerment or, you know, um, giving survivors a voice. I always feel like I can trust Josh to behave accordingly. And that's not always the case sometimes when you're working with men. That's very nice of you In hostile environments, there can be a real sort of machismo, there can be a real sort of macho presence that's massively unhelpful. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I feel very honoured to have worked with you, Josh. That's nice of you. You didn't even get one joke in. No, no, I mean it. I think we sometimes, we go a bit siblingy with each other. Yeah. We can, I can be like, will you do this? And you'll be like, I'll do it, but it's only because it's you. We have, but also the great thing about our working relationship is 
we can be totally honest and totally straight with each other. That's, that's true. Saying, isn't it? But that's what I was like, because I was like, Kev was like, what, would you work with Stacey in the future? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But like, I can't imagine what it would be like because we're so close now. Yeah. Like, it probably could be like a really good thing because you would just be very honest with each mm-hmm. other. But I also think we wind each other up. Yeah. And often, the thing is as well, it's good to kind of offer, offer opinion because it's so subjective. Totally. There have been a couple of times where we have been in the same room, listened to the same conversations with the same contributors and come away with totally different perspectives, which is interesting, isn't it? Massively. Yeah. I also, I said this to Kevin, one of the things I find like it's unique to you and it's really good is that you watch back everything yeah. you do <laughs> like that <laughs> night and nobody else I know does that yeah. you really do why is it that you're doing that you even listen back to voice notes you've sent yeah you, you did the radio show a couple of days is ago it to Scott Mills and you listen to the yeah. whole show back like, is it because you want to improve what is it I think probably a mixture of a couple of things I think you want to improve and you want to make sure that your questions are fair concise um but also, you know what it's like when you're filming, you've only got a couple of weeks mm. and there's such responsibility with some of these topics. Totally. You want to make sure that you haven't missed anything crucial or that you haven't let anything slip. So it might be that you think you held them to account, but actually on reflection, you were a bit softer than maybe you needed to be. Yeah. Or you didn't allow them to articulate clearly what it was that you know they were trying to say but sometimes people clam up in front of the camera yeah so you have to be fair yeah there you go there we go would you like a drink i would i would i think trust is the key thing you're definitely somebody in my life that i trust the most like it's just that's the thing as well when you're talking about like a director sort of present a relationship there's no use you could be with the most remarkable director if you don't trust them yeah you will never you will never give them as much as what you would give someone that you know has no agenda. Totally. Because ultimately, you're the person on screen. So when they watch the film, they're thinking, why the fuck has she said that? Or she's got that totally wrong. They're not going to wait until the end credits. You do feel, it, when in the director role, you do feel like an enormous responsibility totally. to protect and make sure that it is in the right context. Yeah. Because when you are on screen or you're on screen mm. talent in, in any way, you, you get all the flack. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, that's the thing, like, you will inevitably flourish and evolve and, you know, you will become, your roles will differ. But I think you will, I wonder if you will really miss being a director. I'll keep directing. Because you love being on the ground and you love telling the stories and... But it's, um, I'm trying to be a bit more choosy. Yeah. Because I burnt myself out a little totally, bit, I think. Totally, totally. And you, you aren't used to not working in 24 hours a day. Yeah, and that's really weird. So when you take your foot off the gas, even for just a bit, it feels really foreign to you. That's why we've done so much DIY. We've built a cabin. Brit down the poo palace. Down your shed on your gazebo. Kevin <laughs> really told me off that day, didn't you? He said, Stop hassling him. Yeah, stop getting Josh to do jobs. <laughs> I said he likes Josh it. Josh loves a job. <laughs> um, do you want to take um, 
Go on. Um, no, I was just going to uh, sort of wrap it up, basically. And uh, and uh, you should have asked Amy about what it's like to be. Yeah, yeah does Amy, Amy. Co come over as well? This is excellent bonus well, content. We, we should also say we are all socially distanced now outside. Yeah, yeah. we are oh, in yeah, the garden yeah. for your kickoff. Looking at my tree. It's stunning. It is, do we yet? No. But it is edible. Welcome to Kevin Clifton's podcast. Amy. <laughs> this is exactly what you signed up for, isn't it? <laughs> um, Tell the if it's all right. She looks so, <laughs> so unimpressed. We already talked about Amy. Oh, yeah. oh great. But, um, we were, we, but we were talking about what it's like sort of being at home. Like, how do you feel while Josh is out there in these situations doing what he does? Kev hates it when Stacey is. Yeah. Um, I feel that. Uh, I feel totally fine most of the time. I think I'm so committed to the idea of not uh, being a kind of, you know, little puppy dog waiting at the window that I sort of just get on with my life. Um, and I sort of relish the opportunity to, you know, be independent and stuff like that. But I think that mostly I, when Josh is away, I sort of feel okay about it because I know how much planning goes into all of the stuff that he's doing. So I actually mm. never worry. And we were talking about this the other day. Um, and it's weird because like, I'm such an anxious person and I will worry about the most inane stuff. But when Josh is in a war zone, I'm <laughs> super chill about it. Yeah, because mad. it's sort of, there's this managed risk. Um, and that just, yeah, I sort of, I don't have to worry about it because I know I see him spending so much time putting together plans and contingencies and exit strategies and all of these precautions that it means that actually I don't really worry and I can just focus on, yeah. And you're just continuously unimpressed by me in a wonderful way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kev. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been really amazing, actually. And your documentary and your podcast it is amazing. Mm. I want everyone to go and search it out on uh, iPlayer and the podcast. Is that where, for wherever various you... awards? Yeah. How many awards have you been nominated for now? This is a bit cringe. Uh, six. Yeah. on the podcast I haven't been nominated for any for my podcast so it's <laughs> still time still time yeah like I mean loads of people it's been massively successful globally this mm -hmm. podcast it's been a huge success um, you actually see it on the advert on TV yeah. now for that like BBC Sounds have made it their sort of prime um, podcast to get people it to listen to BBC Sounds it came after This Is My House that's right it was on After <laughs> This Is My House show very by our show. very own yeah. Stacey Dooley equally highbrow um, so everyone should go and listen to it listen to the uh, 10 episodes of I'm Not A Monster and then Josh if they want to get in touch with you like on social media oh, or whatever email how me. Do I don't really mind Twitter, Twitter Josh Baker your... Film Josh Baker film. Feel free to be abusive. Feel free to be nice. It's <laughs> don't fun. be abusive. I don't mind. Come on and ask <laughs> it. It's very, it's very good at answering questions um, in a proper way. So, yeah, go and get involved. And so we said we'd do a bit of a... Um, once everyone's listen, listened to the podcast, um, we'll do a bit of a, like a, a live Q&A &A session for everyone to get their questions in. Right. Thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can I have some tea? Yes. Thanks. Can't put the kettle in bed.